Hello and welcome to the Culture File Debate with me, Luke Clancy, and panel. And this time we're troubling museums, storehouses and nurturers of objects, ideas and values, some of those things more contestedly than others. Our particular end-of-the-world moment coincides... It is just a coincidence, right? With a new uprising, a fresh contest for what museums and art museums should, could, would do, for who and why. Headlines at home like demonstrators protest National Gallery links to direct provision caterer echo struggles in recent years at institutions such as the Whitney in New York, while groups like forensic architecture seem to act like a detector for institutional fault lines wherever they show. None of which is new as ever with Nan Golden's pursuit of the Sackler family's art footprint echoing work from the Gorilla Girls from the 80s on to 70s interventions from Hans Hacker and spiralling ever backwards in time even towards the Salon des Refusés. But all of this now unfurls maybe in a more focused understanding of what museums have always been about. It seems hardly worth contesting now that museums could be machines for making, remaking and even faking societies. Surely then they could have a role too in sounding out less perilous, less destructive, less coercive versions of identity. But maybe they could start even by just stopping. Here to trouble the museums with we have Sarah Graveview, who's curator of visual art at Project Arts Centre, where her current show, Metabolic Time, is uh, working with contemporary artists exploring ideas about collections and preservation and time. Hi, Sarah. Hi, thank you for asking me in. Thanks for coming. Laura Rykovich is a writer and curator who's worked with institutions such as Dear Art Foundation and the Guggenheim. She's author of Culture Strike, Art and Museums in the Age of Protest. Laura's based in New York, but she's speaking to us now from Rome, where she's launching the Italian translation of Culture Strike. Kind of ground zero for museums there, Laura. Are they ready for a culture strike? I'm not quite sure about that, but... Uh... Um, certainly some of us are. Thank you so much for having me, Luke. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for joining us. Emma Roach is a visual artist who lives and works in Wexford. Emma would be showing at the National Gallery among those shortlisted for the Zurich Portrait Prize. But Emma was one of three artists who withdrew her work from the exhibition as part of recent protests at the gallery. Hi, Emma. Hi, Lou. Where is the picture now? Um, it's safely in storage, I'm told, until it travels to the Crawford in Cork um, next month. Lovely. And the final chair at this imaginary table is given to Brian Crowley, who's collections curator for two OPW-run museums here in Ireland, Kilmainham Jail Museum and the Pierce Museum. He's the author of Patrick Pierce, A Life in Pictures, and he recently wrote Queering Kilmainham, Uncovering LGBTQIA plus stories in a national shrine. Hello, Brian. Hello, lovely to be here. Lovely to have you too. And maybe, Brian, you'd, you'd help us get started. Maybe we could start with something that reminds us of what exactly we'd like to fight for or about here today, museums. So I'm going to ask all of our guests if they could recall a day, the best day ever that they spent at a museum. Um, so I thought I might uh, think back to when I was kind of young and enthusiastic. I was doing my uh, master's in museum studies, which I did in the University of East Anglia. And uh, we were brought on these kind of trips out to different cities around Britain and we went to Edinburgh 
And I just remember going to the old Royal Museum of Scotland up in Edinburgh. And it's one of these kind of big old Victorian kind of beasts of a, of a museum with everything from natural history to decorative art to archaeology. And there was just so much stuff. And obviously these kind of collections, you know, I suppose now I kind of look at the problematic aspect of, of many of them. But I do just remember at the time feeling very excited about being alive and in the world. And I think museums at their core should be trying to do something like that, making people excited or just curious as well about the world and about life. Lovely, thank you. Lara, um, what museum is lodged in your memory somewhere? Um, When I was the director of the Queen's Museum, we had an opening day uh, where we we opened several exhibitions simultaneously. One being... um, about the the rock punk rock group the Ramones, um, and their impact on thinking through the aesthetics and ethics of punk through a cultural lens, um, and that was opening alongside an exhibition of political cartoons and drawings by William Gropper, frankly, whose anti-fascist political cartoons and drawings could easily be repurposed and recycled literally on the front page of the papers today, as they could have been at the time um, as Donald Trump was seeking his first election in in the U.S. And alongside uh, another exhibition of artists from all over the borough of Queens, which is one of the most ethnically and linguistically diverse places on the planet. Um, That mashup particularly of um, of excitement to see things that were very much interrelated to one another, but not perhaps obviously so, was extremely exciting. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Emma, how about you? In the museum of your mind, what museums do you keep? I think the thing that's the one that stands out in my head the most is um, when Linda Bangles was in Dublin in like 2009. I'm a really big fan of hers and I'd never seen any of the work in real life. And she did a talk during the run of the show. There were pieces of work that I would have looked at the whole way through college and looked at them in like reproductions of those pieces of work. So it was great to see them in the flesh. I'm interested that most people actually it's not a childhood memory of of the museum, which is what I almost imagined was happening. But um, Sarah uh, Graveview, what what museum do you cherish? The most recent day that I spent in a museum was last Saturday in the Museum of Free Dairy. It's a super interesting example of a museum that's trying to do something different in terms of how it collects, how it displays, and its relationship to the community that it sits in. So it's it's the closest museum to my home, and I, I spent an afternoon there hosting somebody just at the weekend. But I guess I also kind of would bookend that with some of those early museum experiences. And um, the thing that I always remember as a child is looking at displays of beautiful golden jewelry (laughs) and uh, dreaming of owning those bits of jewelry. And maybe that says something about the way museums mobilize that like acquisitiveness in all of us um, that, well, in my case, I would like to be covered in gold torques or (laughs) yeah (laughs) well we're actually in a moment where we've had a little pause from museums even though they seem to have been causing trouble around the world getting to them getting access to them has been uh, more difficult than it usually is um at uh brian at uh kilmainham and the pierce museum i I wonder how it feels to have people back in them Uh, again does it kind of raise the stakes again that you feel uh yes here's the contest beginning again 
Yeah, it was a it was a very strange and interesting time, uh, I think, for museums in general. Uh, and just in terms of my own experience, I uh, lived within two kilometres of Kamenem Jail and we needed to have people in the building. There was, so there were three of us in the building on our own uh, throughout lockdown, which, you know, gave me a very kind of different perspective on the building as well. And there was this kind of odd kind of personal relationship with the building and the collection that developed because I was the only one looking at it. Like a lot of my colleagues, we had to kind of think about how how do we continue to do what we do when we can't have people in the physical space? Because so much of what a museum is about is about the physical experience of, of being in a particular place. For a lot of museums, I think there was a little bit of taking stock. And one of the things I suppose I was kind of interested in was those museums who essentially had, when we were able to open, who had no visitors because essentially they had been focusing almost exclusively on an external uh, audience, on on the tourist market. And I think in Ireland in particular, we need to be a bit more critical about what we see museums for. There's a tendency to just see them as attractions that will draw in tourists and bed nights. And I hope the pandemic might cause us, and particularly those with the purse strings, to think a little bit more about that museums, their main function is not just to entertain people who are over here on their holidays. So within the museums that that you work with, how are the conversations about what bits of the collection we value, what we're thinking about collecting, the the conversations that are happening around museums in the world, how are those discussions held among the staff and how do you steer into the currents of this this sort of climate that we're talking about where there is a new contest over what museums could be doing and should be doing? For me, in terms of what, what we're, we will be looking at in Kilmainham, one of the things we're, we've been looking at is looking at the silences within the collection. Uh, like for us, the largest silence is, ironically, the largest group that were ever in the building, which are ordinary prisoners who were from, I suppose, the most marginalised group in Irish society in the 18th, 19th into the 20th century. Um, but particular, uh, the experiences of women who found themselves in the criminal system, in the prison system, which is a, a major issue in Ireland in the 19th century and is largely kind of forgotten about now. But we've also been thinking about things like LGBT history, queer history, traveller history as well. Is Again, the, the building has a relationship with the traveller community and yet that relationship is not particularly well documented within the collection. Sarah, you're working with contemporary art mostly, so that sort of um, sidesteps some of the issues that that, uh, trouble Brian there. So you're facing some of the same questions, but in a slightly different fashion. Yeah, I mean, I have been following the debate around decolonization quite closely, and I think it's it's one that's quite advanced in many ways like museums are having to reckon with the kind of plundered objects that they have and the what that says about their kind of view of the world um so I'm super interested in seeing how that develops but for me as a curator of contemporary art I think that question that took over in my mind was maybe more about how can artists maybe prefigure um what a museum might look like, a decolonized museum or a museum that has like moved beyond some of these questions. What, how, how might we imagine that the museum would be? So the exhibition Metabolic Time that's on in project right now offers like a few different ways that artists are like thinking about 
collecting, thinking about preserving things, thinking differently about how we tell these stories that are part of like a, a kind of uh, creating a civic space, but to tell them in a way that accommodates um, relationships between people or is a little bit warmer or a little bit more human. I guess. Uh, I just want to jump in here because I think something that Brian and Sarah are both talking about is really central to what the conversation needs to be around how we interact with the art and the artworks and what we say about them and how we position them and all of that. But then I think the parallel question and perhaps the one that's even more difficult to address is the underlying structures that make up our cultural spaces. And I think, you know, um, you know, as Luke, you were talking about forensic architecture, they're talking about a lot of these interconnections and structural issues and yet still remain uh, exhibiting within that museum space. And so I think that the kinds of contradictions that we're talking about, you know, the demands that are being made on museums are not simply, simply as though it were anything were simple in any of this, but it's not only about, you know, restitution of artworks that may have been stolen during imperial periods and during colonization. It may may or may not be about, you know, the selection of which contemporary artists to work with and where they're from and what kind of ideas they represent, but also quite literally what the material conditions are for making a museum function. I mean, when I worked at the Queen's Museum, it was, uh, you know, part of the struggle was in a sense convincing people that the museum was the people who made the museum possible. It was the staff, the people who cleaned the bathrooms every day, who made sure the doors were open and unlocked for the publics to come in. You know, uh, that, that that was a central part of the museum, just as much as a collection might be, right? And and I think that just, it's a qu- it's a question of questioning the values that puts value on some things like collections and not others like people. And I think that that is the most intense reckoning that museums have to confront. And so, you know, there's not only the question of, you know, the what and the where and the structural piece, but also, you know, acknowledging just that very fact that most of our institutions come out of very specific cultural, historical periods and that they were founded in another time and space that means that they have a bias. That's particularly fascinating in the Irish uh, context, what you say there, Laura. And I think Emma could tell us about this because what's quite surprising about that headline that I read earlier and, and the National Gallery affair here is that the person who's focusing the institution is an artist outside the institution. And Emma, as an artist withdrawing her work, is forcing the conversation in a particular direction. And it seems like that is how that particular institution is being steered. Emma, tell us a little bit about what happened at the National Gallery. And I mean, they're not here to defend themselves, but it's kind of quite clear what you did and the effect that it had. Sure, yeah, I don't know if I was so sure um, how much of an effect it would have. When it came about first, I wrote an email in support of the staff because it was the staff that were working in the gallery voiced their concerns first. So it showed up in the in the journal newspaper because of that. And then uh, Brian Teeling, one of the other artists, had already asked for his work to be removed. Um, but mine was just kind of 
say that we were in support of the staff's views and because we were exhibiting artists at the time it really felt like we had to say something and then I didn't really have a plan for what would happen after that but it was the response from the gallery from management and from the director which was a generic response that had been sent to the papers already and I think anyone that has sent an email or voice and opinion has got the same response it's it's basically they were saying that they were their hands were tied because of the assessment criteria and it was very a very final email I guess there wasn't really much room for correspondence I didn't feel or any kind of conversation after that so just I mean I am used to working in a visual language I don't you know speaking and writing probably aren't my main thing so it was I felt like I didn't really have much choice I think once there was no kind of room for further conversation it was kind of necessary to make a point or for something to maybe happen. Emma I have two things to say about what you just spoke about because I think there are two things that are super important one is the agency that you felt that you had as an artist to use your power in this situation to say no, I refuse to exhibit under these circumstances. This is not okay, right? And and as always as has happens in almost all of these situations, the action of withdrawal or of with of withholding can be a very powerful one and it's important for us as cultural producers to keep that in mind. Um, I think this is one of the big spaces for potential reform within museums. I make a big point in my book about cultural spaces having to change the way they understand protest or criticism, what people are telling us as cultural producers within institutions is that they want to engage with us. This is like a radical form of care, this protest. If nobody cared about what happened inside the museum, nobody would bother to withdraw their artwork or frankly to give it to the museum to exhibit in the first place. If you're being protested, it means somebody cares about what you're doing and how you're doing it. And so that's a real opportunity to imagine as you were saying, Sarah, this kind of space, not only the, for the future of the museum, but also how we imagine care, how we imagine the museum being able to actually embody that through its response to crisis or to controversy or to protest. In, in my mind, that is such an important aspect of what responses like the one to Emma's and her compatriots' actions were at the National Gallery. I think this is like an extremely important test case in a sense, you know? Sarah, how do you go about creating an, in, an integrated institution if, if it has values that they somehow are reflected not just in what you have on show, but in, in how you work, how you live? Mm. I mean, I was thinking there, um, just going back to that initial story, I have written a little bit about the Museum of Free Dairy before, which is an interesting institution in the way that it's organized as a kind of a people's museum. They have a collection of objects that technically all of the objects are on loan. Like they're all from members of the community. It deals with a very brief period of time of 1968 to 1972, basically between the time of Free Dairy um, in, yeah, in the area where the museum is through to Bloody Sunday, the sort of end point of that moment. Um, so all of the objects are things that were held by individuals in the community. They're personal objects that were brought in and offered to the museum. And they have this contract that says that they can withdraw those objects at any time. Like technically, they're, they continue to be owned by these people. So it's a museum that's very much embedded in its community. And I think it creates a very different relationship 
to that community. But it doesn't take away all of the problems. Like, because it's embedded in the community, it reflects the kind of political and social fractures in that community. And they, too, have experienced protests about displays and have had to figure out a way to navigate their way through managing that and finding solutions to that. It's a difficult question, I think, what a museum can look like. We have sort of circled around a question there, which is the money question. I know it's something that you've uh, thought about a lot, Lara, because I, I suppose this sense that a museum is a machine that also is for making social capital and selling social capital. You know, it can be bought, but it's very expensive. How, how can museums answer the, the money question, Lara? The money question is the toughest nut to crack, um, especially from an American standpoint, um, given the um, basically zero national uh, contribution to culture across the board. I mean, the national there is no national culture ministry in the United States. I mean, that is just like, to me, beyond shocking. There is no national cultural policy. And I'm not saying that it's necessarily better (laughs) in a European model where there is more government funding. But what I advocate for is actually uh, a diversity of, of sources of funds, because in any situation, frankly, where you don't have a diversification of your sources of funds, you are uh, subject to a great deal of pressure. But cultural infrastructure is something that most people in the United States should be able to get behind to a certain degree. This would provide a certain baseline of funding that can be augmented also by obviously private support, which is never going to go away. And so the question then becomes, how do you navigate the private support part? And, you know, part of it for me is reimagining what boards look like and what kind of power they do and don't have over governance structures, whether the people who are actually on the board have anything to do with the money part is a big question for me. You know, I mean, just having been a museum director, for example, when something really came up that I was struggling with in terms of how to run the museum, I wasn't on the phone with my board chair necessarily. I was on the phone with people like Sarah and people like Ryan, you know, like with my colleagues, with people who have shared, you know, these issues and problems. So maybe we need different kinds of boards that deal with the governance of the institution so that the the funding structures aren't so embedded in the actual structural integrity of the institution. For me, and I think it's, it's, it's also, it's kind of a wider issue in terms of the museum sector globally is we have uh, uh, positioned ourselves as kind of these ethical organizations, these uh, institutions based on values. And that's why that's why we expect public support. Uh, and that's why we feel, I suppose, that we're worthy of support. But if you are an institution of values, those values have to be everywhere in, in terms of how you conduct yourself in the commercial sphere, but also how you treat uh, your staff and how you treat um, members of the public in terms of the wider issue is, you know, uh, and it's really, I feel, has come to a head, the sudden discovery among in the contemporary art field that, um, you know, Russian oligarchs have been a huge influence and driver in the art market and, and art museums. And it's, as, you know, people are acting as if this is a, you know, uh, something new that they have just discovered uh, since the invasion of Ukraine. But it highlights the, the fact that, you know, at the very, sometimes at the very top of museums, the ethics which are apparent among the staff and among the activity of the institution 
uh, at grassroots doesn't always permeate up. And, you know, I, I suppose in terms of the American experience, uh, and I, I remember when we had the last crash, and I'm kind of concerned about where we might be heading now uh, in terms of the world economy. But when we had the last crash, there was a lot. There's always, Every time there's a crash and there's a funding crisis for museums, they said, well, you need to look at philanthropy. You need to look at the American model. And everything I see of the American model makes me very disquieted because you know, certainly I remember the first time I went to the Metropolitan Museum in New York and it felt like one of those kind of 18th or 19th century novels where you were being allowed into the country house while the owners were away down in London. And, and I think, like in Ireland, we need to see the value of that, that publicly owned institutions don't get hived off as just another thing for the rich to, to own or control. Um, you know, you mentioned look about kind of Nan Golden and the whole kind of Sackler debacle and that again I think should be a real cautionary tale for us in museums as to you know when people are giving us money why are they giving us money is it always for those values and those ethics that we think are so important or is it you know as you mentioned kind of social capital and cultural capital that can be bought I'm I'm interested in uh, you, you raise the question of the buildings that like the the experience of somebody visiting a, a gallery or a museum in 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 New York I think you're you're talking about but I'm interested to hear all of you uh, talk about a little bit about the building because it seemed to me striking that this controversy was around the National Gallery which is actually the museum that has the most sort of um, imperial-looking architecture that this sort of neoclassical look it bestows a certain kind of character on the things inside it. And it's interesting that that's uh, our flashpoint for it. Sarah, how does space interplay with what you're trying to do? I mean, you have, again, a, a legacy building, but it's a more recent legacy. Well, our space is a is a white cube space, so it's quite different from, like, a grand <laughs> building. So in some ways, I'm not dealing with the weight of like a historical like architectural space I'm not fighting against that I have like a another set of concerns maybe that I'm trying to work against or play with or sounds like you're saying the architecture is neutral well (laughs) I'm trying not to say that but I'm saying it feels like a slightly different set of concerns because I do feel like you know like if you're in a Victorian building it brings you to a lot of questions about like Victorian values and what the what it was to exhibit work in that era or what that building was built for and the view of the world that it's trying to express and I guess that's not exactly the problem that I'm working against within a contemporary art space. Yeah, and I would say I would say Sarah that you actually have the tougher problem because uh, the Victorian space is clear, right? It's like you know y- you can talk about the history of the building as a Victorian site and what that means, and um, some of your audiences will know, um, you know, will have a sense, will have some kind of, will get that texture. But when you have uh, one of these kind of more modernist buildings, um, it may not be exactly so clear what the um, what the messaging is, you know. And oftentimes these buildings that have been built more recently 
were meant to display a different kind of power, um, you know, as the kind of great temple-like structures that imitate uh, ancient Greece and Rome, um, you know, that were adopted by, you know, many museums like the Met. I agree. It's very hard sometimes to name power in this situation and to understand how it operates. And maybe it's not exactly the same kind of colonial power that maybe those um, Victorian spaces point to, but it's about class. It's about who feels comfortable coming in. It's about like how they feel within the space. It's a concern. It seems like in the end that the big questions of museums come down to all the little questions of museums. And that's where we're going to wrap up our conversation this time. I'd like to thank very much our panel. I've enjoyed talking to them very much. Sarah Graveview, Laura Reykjavich, Emma Roach and Brian Crowley. Thank you all very much for joining us. We'll be back with your usual culture file on Monday evening at 6.40. Until then, bye now. Bye. 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 bye.